0: Let's pray. (laughs) Lord, I need your mercy every week to proclaim your truth and to get the point of the passage right and to apply it appropriately to our lives. And so I ask your help. Please, Father, would you fill us with your truth and protect us from error? And this morning, in preparation for Good Friday, this coming week, And Easter Sunday next week, may you give us eyes to see the glory of Christ today. I praise you, Father. I've been refreshed by your word this week in this passage, and I ask you now to refresh us all, that we might worship him and adore him, be ruled by him. May our desires be ruled by him more because of our time together here We love you, and we praise you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Philippians chapter 2 another time. And if you would take your Bible and turn there, Philippians chapter 2. And I want to read this text. And um, before I do, I just want to say that in Philippians 2... The Apostle Paul is teaching us what what I like to call the kingdom ethic of humility, the kingdom ethic of humility. You see, in the kingdom of God, where the Father's will is perfectly done on, on earth as it is in heaven, people strive, his people strive and even sacrifice to fulfill the needs of others over their own. They delight in the opportunity to serve rather than be served. In the kingdom of God, there is no act of service so base, so low, that a man or a woman or a child is unwilling to stoop for the good of another. This is the kingdom ethic of humility. And I'm going to argue this morning that it's not only true of this life, it will be true of the kingdom of God. When we see Jesus face to face. And so we ask, where does the ethic of humility come from in the kingdom of Christ? And the answer to that is we get this kingdom ethic from the king himself. Not only does he command it, but he demonstrates it in ways that far exceed any act of humility to which we will ever be called in this life. Think about it for a moment. The eternal king of heaven and earth actually laid aside his royal robes and his crown. He stepped down from his highly exalted throne. He humbled himself to become a human baby, completely, can you imagine? Completely dependent upon his mother. He suffered the indignities of childhood, the awkwardness of adolescence, the the reproach of jealous siblings, the rejection of the very people he created for himself, for his own good pleasure and for their joy. Additionally, despite his unquestionable power to miraculously heal the sick, feed the hungry, calm the storm, cast out demons, raise the dead, and lead people into eternal truth, they rejected him. They betrayed him. They falsely accused him. And in an an ultimate travesty of justice, they sentence him to death for breaking the very law that he perfectly fulfilled every single moment of his life. Why? Why did he subject himself to such humiliation? I mean, he did it willfully. He did it purposefully. He was happy in, on the throne in heaven. Why would he subject himself to this? Well, he did it because it was the only way That we, who are hardwired to reject him, could be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sovereign king of heaven and earth. This is an amazing statement the sovereign king of heaven and earth, humbled himself. And he died in our place that we might be saved. This, beloved, is divine humility. This is divine humility, but praise God, it's not the end of the story. This gospel narrative, this epic narrative of the humble sovereign doesn't end with the shameful death. Because you see, Jesus is king not only heaven and earth, not only over heaven and earth, but over death and hell as well. Therefore, death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. the The undeniable proof of that is the fact, which we will celebrate next Sunday, that he is risen from the dead. Now, we've spent two weeks working through Paul's testimony of the humiliation of Christ today. However, we gather to worship the highly exalted Christ. And I don't know, it might take two weeks to get through this. The highly exalted Christ. And let's begin by standing together in honor of God's word and reading Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. And every week I include verse 5 so that we will not forget... Paul's purpose in in, in offering us this rich, deep theology. So verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Lord has spoken, and you may be seated. We've talked much about Jesus' response, Jesus' response to his humiliation, how he willingly humbled himself and, and endured it, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We've seen a lot about how Christ responded to his humiliation. This morning, however, I want to talk about how the father responded to his son's humiliation. And that's not just a novel idea. This is is what the text tells us. How did the father respond to his son's humiliation? And let's start there, the Father's response to Christ's humiliation. In verse 9, we read this. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Now, whenever we study the Bible and we come to the word, therefore, it it, it ought to be a flag to us. It ought to pique our interest. We ought to look at it very carefully and say, Lord, what what are you trying to say? What, what, What is he pointing back to? And so we need to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? In this case, it's it's here to point back to Christ's willing, obedient humiliation on our behalf. This is all that he's spoken about in everything that we've talked about for the last two weeks. Paul is telling us that it is on the count of Jesus' obedient, self-humbling that God the Father highly exalted him. It is because of his radical self-humbling that he exalted him. Now, I suppose that God the Father could have responded to the mistreatment and abuse of his son in any number of ways. At the scene of the cross, he could have retaliated immediately by sending just one, just one angel. He could have sent an angel to execute divine justice on those who perpetrated the crime, as he did in the days of Hezekiah in 2 Kings uh, chapter 19. When an angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 soldiers, and I love it in the King James when I was a kid, I used to laugh at this, uh, and it it says, and when they awoke, they were all dead men. (laughs) He could have sent one angel. He could have caused the ground to open up under the Sanhedrin and thrust them in in an untimely and unmarked grave as he did with the family of Korah in the days of Moses. And To be sure, God's promise is that one day he will bring the sword of justice to bear upon sinners who finally reject his son, and he will call us to worship him and praise him for it. Justice will be done. But that frightening truth doesn't help Paul communicate our need for humility. It doesn't help Paul communicate to the brothers and sisters at Philippi the need to be motivated to relate to one another in the pursuit of unity and do so by the means of active, purposeful humility. I praise God For the unity of Calvary Bible Church. Uh, When I'm thinking properly, I praise God every day for the unity that exists at Calvary Bible Church. But you know why it exists? It exists, first of all, because Christ humbled himself. And secondly, because God is working out, the Spirit is working out that humility in you. And we're going to come there next in Philippians, right? Right? Work out your own salvation. And the immediate antecedent in terms of the ethic that he's referring to here is humility. Work this into every area of your life. And I see it here. I see it here. <laughs> um, there was a young girl who approached me in the hallway today. And I don't think I've ever had a young girl do this. She approached me and she stopped me. I'm her pastor. I'm like uh, a thousand times older than she is, right? And she said, She said, Pastor, thank you for serving us. And I said, and at first I didn't understand what she was saying. And I thought, what an act of humility that is to thank me for serving her. That really blessed my heart. And you know who you are. I praise God for that. That blessed me this morning. And you know what? That's happening at Calvary Bible Church all the time through texting and through email and through phone calls and through, you know, once in a while, even a handwritten letter. I know it's rare, but sometimes. Don't miss this. Paul is calling the Philippians, and by extension, everyone who is united to Christ, to relate to one another in all humility, preserving the unity of the body in the bond of peace. The ultimate model for that humility and the ultimate motivation for that humility are contained in this text. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at. Paul is not, and this is going to sound like heresy, and I mentioned it once before, but just because I like to stir things up. Um, This passage is... All about Christ, but that's not Paul's primary purpose. It is the means to the end. he's taking us deep into Christology to motivate and to teach us the need for humility. By this rich, unfathomable Christology, he is giving us both a model and the motive for humility in the church and in our homes. And so the model of humility is Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, humbled himself and took the form of a servant and became a man and served people by dying in the most painful and shameful way possible for our sakes, he did it for us. He put our interests, our needs ahead of his own. This is the ultimate model of humility. And now Paul is teaching us something about the motivation. The rest of this text teaches us something about the motivation. Why should we be motivated? What, what biblical teaching motivates us to live like this? Well, listen, sometimes we're down on self-interest. I would submit to you that Paul appeals, the scriptures appeal to our own self-interest all the time because we want what's best for us, Right? It's okay to agree with that, right? Isn't that theologically correct? We want what's best for us. And God is always appealing to that. He's always appealing to that. Not in a sinful way. Not in a way that should even tempt us to sin. But because of his grace. Because of his grace. Listen, for every command, there's a promise. For every command, there's a promise. We talked about this in Sunday school. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. And it's the first command with a promise that it may go well with you so that you may live long on the earth. You're not going to obey your parents? You don't want to live long, do you? The appeal is I want to live a happy, long life. And God says it starts with obeying your parents. And he does the same thing here. Don't be afraid of self-interest. Just don't make too much of it. As with everything, you need to keep it in its place. So Paul's teaching about the motive, the motivation for humility, namely that God rewards those who willingly humble themselves for the benefit of others and the glory of God. God rewards those. He pours out blessing on those who pursue humility, and that's what we see here in, in, a, in a super, abounding, maximum, superlative way. We see it in the, in the Christology of this text, what Paul is telling us about the glory of Christ. God is rewarding his son for emptying himself and making himself as nothing so that we could become sons and daughters of God. And that all begins, and all, all of it begins to come to light for us in the word, therefore. Or the NAS says, for this reason. And so let's let's pick that up. Therefore, because the Son of God obediently humbled himself, therefore God highly exalted him. Now the term highly exalted is, is really only one word in the Greek text. And, uh, and it's too big for me to pronounce, maybe Keith could pronounce it for us, but um, it's one word, and it's only used here in the New Testament. And there are other forms of this word that are used in the New Testament, but this particular form is only used here, and it means to exalt above and beyond, or to super exalt The Father is lifting Jesus higher in rank and status than anyone else and everyone else put together. You line up all the kings and all the lords and all the governors and all of the, the political leaders, congressmen, uh, prime ministers, princes, kings, bring them all together. And all together, they don't have the authority and the And the status to which God raised his son. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God super exalted him. The Father is lifting Jesus, lifting him up, lifting him up, lifting him up, because he obediently humbled himself to accomplish the Father's will on the cross for sinners. Therefore, God has elevated Jesus to the loftiest heights where he receives the place of highest honor and majesty and is once again seated at the right hand of God on his throne. The promise of God is this. He who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. This is what Paul's appealing to here. He's taking us into this christology To emphasize that principle like it's emphasized nowhere else in the Bible. This is the superlative, extreme explanation of this text. He's saying, You want a humble church? I mean, you you want a unified church? Then you need to pursue humility. And remember this whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the motivation. Look to Jesus, who humbled himself infinitely lower than anyone else ever did or could. And afterward is lifted to the highest heights of exaltation. And notice how the author of Hebrews repeatedly mentions this. Hebrews 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, that's humiliation, that's the cross. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's the exaltation. Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's humiliation. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. That's exaltation. Exaltation. Hebrews 12, two, Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, that's all humiliation, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's exaltation. My friend, it, it certainly matters how you respond to Christ's humiliation. It does matter how you respond to Christ's humiliation. But the response that really matters for eternity is not how you respond to Christ's humiliation, but how the Father responded to Christ's humiliation. You know, every text you go to, the first question that you should ask every text is, not what does it say for me or to me? What does it say about God? What does it reveal about God? The best you and I can do is depend upon and trust Christ for eternal life. But God the Father? God the Father had the power to exalt him. And this he did when when he raised Jesus from the dead. This he did when Jesus ascended to heaven. This he did when he was seated at the right hand of Almighty God. This is the father's response to Christ's humiliation. Second notice, the father's gift for sovereign administration. The king is the chief administrator for the entire kingdom. And in fact, the leader of a kingdom is often... Referred to as the administration in fact even here in America when you talk about the president and his cabinet It's called the administration And here it is the Apostle Paul is telling us notice What he says in verse 9 therefore God highly exalted him and Bestowed on him a name that is above every name This is the father's gift for sovereign administration in response to Christ's humiliation, the Father bestowed on him a name. The phrase bestowed on him means to give as a gift. But it carries the tone of giving it wholeheartedly. The Father is not surrendering this gift because he lost the game. He's willingly He's wholeheartedly giving it to the Son. This is what the three members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhood, this is what they were striving for. This is what they were after. This was the end game. This was the end zone. This was winning the Super Bowl. Though hell and all of its demon and Satan himself did everything in his power from the Garden of Eden all the way to the resurrection and even now to stop Christ from being all that God would make him be. You see, beloved, the Father is in no way threatened by the elevation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not demigods, consistently conniving, strategizing, jockeying for supremacy. Rather, they are delighted in the exaltation of Christ. Christ. The three persons of the Godhead exist eternally as one in essence, one in will, one in motive, one in purpose. On everything. And so it was the Father's great delight to exalt the Son and bestow upon him this special gift. Well, what is the gift? The gift is a name. There's a title of supremacy, it is an appellation of divine majesty. After a lifetime of self-humbling and obedience, there comes to Jesus in the Father's good pleasure the very thing that he might have grasped for himself. You remember that word? You remember that word? Who although, verse six, he existed in the form of God, did not Count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That thing, that status, that name that he refused to grasp, to lay hold of, to cling to, he gave it up in humiliation for us. And now he is receiving the very thing that he let go of. What is the name? What is the name? Well, at first blush, we might think Paul's referring to the name Jesus. Um, In actuality, however, the name Jesus only tells us who is poised to receive the gift. And it is a name that is going to be given him. Jesus already had his name. His name was a glorious name. Yeshua, also translated Joshua, Joshua. And it means Yahweh saves, God saves. Perfect, perfect for Jesus. Yahweh saves, but that's not the name he's referring to here. He's identifying the person. And yes, even the name Yahweh saves is a glorious name. So what is the name? William Hendrickson is helpful on this point. He explains that in biblical usage, the name is that which expresses the person's character, reputation, dignity, work, power, his particular position in the divine economy. Let me just stop him here and say, this is why we pray in the name of Jesus. We're praying in his authority, according to his character, in obedience to his will. That's what it means to pray in his name. But Hendrickson goes on, hence, often the name keeps pace with the person. For example, Abraham became, Abram became Abraham. Abraham. Sarai develops into Sarah. Jacob changes to Israel. Solomon receives the name Jedediah. And Simon, also called Cephas, is Peter. There are times in the Bible when people's status is elevated by the change of their name or adding to their name. And the same kind of thing is happening here. In his earthly ministry, the son's name was Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. Now, now that his work is complete and his exaltation has come, the same Jesus, this same Jesus is given a new name, a new title, a new status. And that name is Lord. He is Lord. It's the one thing that almost nobody in the Gospels said. Remember doubting Thomas? He was one of the few. After his doubting, he said, "Uh, listen, which is a great text because it shows us, it shows us that even the apostles, you have a hard time believing Jesus rose from the dead? Not to worry. Not even the apostles all believed it at first. People came to the apostles, and they said, Jesus is risen. Thomas said, I doubt it. Unless I see the prince, the nails in his hands and in his feet, unless I can put my hand into the wound in his side, I will never believe. Next Sunday night, the Lord appears in the upper room. You know what Thomas does? He falls on his face, and he says something. Something. Jesus says, Thomas, believe. Now believe. Put your hand here in my my wounds. Thrust your hand into my side and believe. And Thomas falls on his face and he says, My Lord and my, what? God. For those who think no one ever said Jesus was God, um, I have a friend whose name is Thomas, who would say otherwise. God exalted him. Listen to the Apostle Paul, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him The name, the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, beloved, God's goal in redemptive history was not merely to save sinners. Do you understand that? Do we understand our place? We were not the ultimate reason. Uh, there used to be a song by a female Christian group that, that went like this. God's, God loves people more than anything. And I used to bristle at that. And now that's not true. It's not true. God doesn't love people more than anything. God loves his son more than anything. We just get the benefit of God exalting his son God's goal in redemptive history is not primarily about saving sinners. In fact, we might say that salvation of sinners is the penultimate goal of Christ's humiliation, not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that in the end, the end of all things, all history, all people, all rule, all authority will be summed up in Jesus Christ that he will hold supremacy over everything. Hence, we read certain passages in the, in the New Testament that say things like this. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration, which is where I got that word, suitable to the fullness of times. That is, now he's gonna tell us where this is going. That is, The summing up of all things in Christ. Things, in case we need categories here, things in the heavens and things on earth. Everything, all of history is going to culminate in one person. And we will look back and we will realize from beginning to end, not only through human history, but through every moment of your life, God was moving it somewhere. History is... His story, it's His story, it's all about Christ. But because of Christ, we get the benefit that God was exalting Himself by exalting His Son and the supreme way to exalt the Son was to give Him a people who would worship Him forever. And not just a people, but a sinful people whom he would redeem with his own precious blood, thus maximizing the glory of the Father in the Son and by the power of the spirit ephesians one twenty Through 22, God raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus, God is making Jesus head of all things. And then he gives Jesus to the church. And he gives the church to Jesus. And all the glory goes to the Father. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. How about 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And if you need one more, how about this one that you already know? Matthew 28, verse 19. Here on the very last day on earth, Jesus came to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. He's about to ascend into heaven, and he says these words. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. All authority. That was the goal. To exalt the Son. When you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Jesus is what? Now don't, don't answer. Let me give you some options first. Jesus is my comforter. That's okay. He, he is that. Jesus is my source of wisdom. He is that. He is that. Jesus is my hope. Oh, praise God, he is that. Um, Jesus is my truth. Jesus is my life. Praise God, he is all of that. But the question really is, do you think of him as king? As Lord? Do you think, every time you open the scriptures, Lord, help me to see the king. Help me see the king, or teach me how to live before this king. I remember uh, one time in Uganda, getting ready to pray with Shannon Hurley, and we like to stand here. We learned that from our Russian brothers, so we stand when we pray a lot, and uh, I started to stand, and he said, brother, no, let's pray king style, and I said, what's that? We get on our knees. That's appropriate. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. You know what? If, if Jesus is my, 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 then we're not quite, we we got to focus our lens a little more clearly. Jesus is not, first of all, my anything. He simply is. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. You see, beloved, there is there's is coming a day, a great day, a glorious day, a terrible day. It'll be a day when everyone will be everyone and everything will be handed over to Christ, the sovereign ruler of the cosmos and every intelligent being who has ever lived in heaven. Well, that's the cherubim, the seraphim, the 10,000 times 10,000 angels, including archangels. It includes also all the redeemed humanity who have departed from this earth and have entered the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. It's heaven. And on earth, these are people who are alive on that day, the day The wonderful day, the terrible day of the Lord. And under the earth, this includes all the damned of hell, along with the malevolent demons, one day all will, by the sheer force of his supreme and sovereign person, by the sheer force of just seeing, just perceiving, his royal sovereign person, every knee will automatically Bow, the name Jesus will be named, and at that name, every knee will bow. Why? Because he is Lord. He is Lord. (laughs) He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. do you love that song? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This was the whole point of history. Jesus Christ is ruler. Jesus is Lord. In fact, history teaches us that the earliest confession of the first century church was this Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We have big, long confessions. We have Baptist confessions, we have Lutheran confessions. We have ancient church history documents that, that have sprung off, spun off confessions. This is the shortest and the most important. Jesus is Lord. And oh, how this must have strengthened the suffering saints in Philippi to be reminded and to believe that in the ultimate sense, Caesar's not Lord. Nero is not Lord. For us, the Supreme Court is not Lord. The Democrats aren't Lord. The Republicans are not Lord. Donald Trump is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And this brings us to the final point. We've seen the Father's response to the Son's humiliation, the Father's gift for a sovereign administration, and then finally, number three, the Father's ultimate glorification. The last words in this passage are simple to the glory of God the Father. Even now, though Jesus is being exalted above all rule and authority and every title that has ever been named, he still maintains, can you believe it, his humility, even in his ultimate glory. Do you realize that upon the throne of God, deity, upon the throne of God, this very day, there sits a man Who has not departed or let go of any of his divine attributes as God? He is the God man. He still stands as our high priest, our human high priest, intercessing for us, interceding for us daily. He maintains his humility, he still lives to glorify the Father. And this was the plan all along, wasn't it? I mean, John 17, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and was about to be arrested, he prayed these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. He could have stopped praying there, right? But there was more to the plan. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even now, on the eve of his most catastrophic humiliation, the son was seeking to elevate another, the father. Everything he did was in accord with the will of the father, in obedience to the father, for the glory of the father. And as he humbled himself, the father lifted him up, glorifying the son as the father Glorifies the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father. Let me build the bridge here. As you are serving one another, you are also being lifted up by one another. Every time you serve another person, that person is lifting, being lifted up. And whenever someone serves you, You are being lifted up. This is how it works in heaven. This is how the kingdom of God is supposed to function. And this fits perfectly with Paul's teaching on the kingdom ethic for the church. Paul's purpose is to exhort and inspire the members of the church of Philippi, and by extension, the church of Fort Worth, to live in harmony with one another. He was concerned about their unity. He knew it could only be maintained through humility. And so he offers the example or the model of Jesus who humbled himself and then experienced the glory of having God the Father lift him up. And this is how God designed it. Not just for Jesus, but for we, his followers, as well. The pattern is this. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, I'm not, I'm not cramming in a, a call to humility into this text. This, this text is screaming humility, both in model and in motive. The pattern is, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great in the kingdom of God. The difficulty is that there is a conspicuous difference between the greatness that is defined by the world and the greatness that is defined by God. In the kingdom of this world, greatness is all about self-advancement, self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. In the kingdom of God, however, greatness is defined by humility, other-centeredness and servitude, virtues, frankly, that the world abhors. We see this pattern throughout the New Testament. Let me give you some more scriptures. Somebody came, a visitor came, uh, months ago, and I'm not sure they've been back, and when I got done, I welcomed them and, and, and uh, asked him how he, you know, did he enjoy his time here today, and he said, well, wow, that was, uh, that was, uh, uh, what did he say, that was the, the, the best or the most uh, thorough Bible study that I have been in in a while, and I smiled and I, and I said, thank you, and then I walked away and I thought, maybe he didn't mean that as a compliment. <laughs> um, but I took it as a compliment because I hope you're here to, to hear God. And so listen to God speak. Matthew 23, 11 through 12. When Jesus exhorted his disciples not to take upon themselves human titles of honor. Don't let anyone call you father or teacher. He said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. Nothing wrong with wanting to be exalted as long as you're being exalted God's way and, and, and God is doing it, not you. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Peter exhorts believers to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that, notice, notice the appeal to self-interest, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God will bless you in ways that you cannot imagine. I mean, he may not make you the the greatest, I mean, the smartest person in the room. He might not make you the most talented person in the room. That's not what this is about. But God will bless you in ways that, I don't know how he's going to do that in your life. I keep a record of how he blesses me so I can look back at it And realize how kind he's been to this sinner. How about 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6? Peter exhorts believers. Oh, I said that, clothe yourself. How about James 4, 10? The author calls his readers to humbly repent before God, declaring, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you're here today, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? It's a pride problem. It's pride. Can I just say it? Pride. It's a pride problem. You're unwilling to bend the knee. And you will never come to Christ. You'll never know Christ. You'll never have eternal life until you humble yourself. But here's the promise. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will give you eternal life. How's that for lifting up? He'll give you a new name. you will be Christian. He'll give you a new family, a new mother and father and sisters and brothers In Luke 18, 14, Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, and he concluded the story by saying of the humble tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what he's talking about there? Salvation. If you don't have it, there's one reason why you don't have it. There's a word for it. Pride. It's pride. Pride. You're a proud man, you're a proud woman, you love yourself, you're devoted to yourself. Stop it. Repent of that. Cast yourself at the feet of Christ, or humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, that he, then He will lift you up. You see, the whole text of Philippians 2: 5 through11 offers, the ultimate model and motivation for how to live as members of the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul said, have this uh, mind or this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I think it's safe to infer from that statement and other passages that living like this, relating to one another in Christ-like humility, is the path to blessing. It's good for us. And it has been good for us. This church is so easy to love. You guys are just so easy to serve. And the reason for that is the kingdom of God is here. And it's evidenced in your service to one another. Your love for one another, your sacrificing for one another. And one more thing before we close. When we get to heaven, I think we're going to discover that this is how everyone will live there. And we're right there. And we will remember the model, and he will still be our motivation. And he will be our model, even in heaven. You say, Well, isn't he sitting on his throne? Yes. But he won't stop serving. You say, That sounds wrong. Well, let me let Jesus tell you. If you haven't heard this text before, you're going to be shocked. Blessed are those slaves, it's doulos, it's not bondservant, there is no Greek word, bondservant, slaves. Blessed are those slaves, that you and me, whom the master, the master, will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, Christ, Lord, will gird himself to serve and have them, that's us, recline at the table, and will come up and wait on them." That's staggering. You see, this is the kingdom ethic of humility. It brings exaltation and glory. And the principle is very simple. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, the water is really deep here. It is unfathomable that in heaven, you will serve your people. Praise you, Lord, that you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. You will always be king. You will always be Lord. You've never not been king or Lord. You will always be. And yet you've always been a servant. You've always humbled yourself before the Father. You've always obeyed the Father. No, Father, I pray that you would, by that model, teach us to humble ourselves before you. Empowered by the motivation that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, Father, glory, wonder, amazement, praise you. Amen.